when Pastor Chad called me late Thursday evening to tell me about the pain he was in, I instantly had empathy. Someone has said that the difference between sympathy and empathy is located between your fourth and fifth lumbar segments. <laughs> I know this story, and that's why I told him that though this congregation would rather hear him, I would be glad to share the word this morning. You've heard from God's word this morning in John 13, a story about the love of Jesus. Let me tell you another one. He waits in a 10 by 12 prison cell on death row considering his next appeal. His lawyer has advised him to not be too hopeful. Federal appeals courts in cases like his don't usually overturn convictions. Seven convictions for the torture and murder of elementary school children. An efficient prosecution team. A trio of accomplices who turn state's evidence. A jury that took just two hours to convict. He is the most hated man in Houston. People shudder when they say his name. Radio talk show callers offer to pay the prison's electric bill on the night when he is put to death in the state's electric chair. He feels the hatred of millions of people aimed at him personally as if he were some loathsome subhuman creature in a B-movie at a drive-in. But even in the awful knowledge of what he has actually done, he congratulates himself. At least, he says, at least... I am no Judas. She waits in her elegant Georgetown apartment, fingering the stack of documents that her defense team has prepared for tomorrow's preliminary hearing. She's the talk of Washington and London and Beijing and Moscow, a, a skillful political pro who played the game to win, and, and win she did, at least until recently. The agency she headed for the last three years has been rocked by revelations. Court documents reveal that she extorted huge paybacks from government contractors for the lucrative deals her agency handed out. The special prosecutor's office has leaned hard on her subordinates, and some of them have cracked, she knows. They have confessed some of their sins and all of hers. Chances are she'll serve her 30 months in some suburban Maryland correction center where the tennis courts are slightly below average and the weekend passes for good behavior aren't that hard to get. Yes, she's fallen from favor. Yes, she has disgraced the trust the public placed in her. Yes, she has embarrassed powerful political patrons on Pennsylvania Avenue and Capitol Hill. But at least, she tells herself, at least I am no Judas. 
It's no mystery, my friends, why fully one-third of the people on this planet use just one name as the yardstick by which to measure all our sins. Two billion Christians have just one name on their lips when we want to compare ourselves to the extremity of evil. We shudder, and rightly so, at names like Nero, Adolf Hitler, Mao Zedong, Joseph Stalin. We can call to mind the, the horrible depravities of John Wayne Gacy and Jeffrey Dahmer, some of us old enough remember the dream-destroying murderousness of Lee Harvey Oswald, Sirhan Sirhan, and who could forget Osama bin Laden. But for sheer loathsomeness, there's one name that makes us all glad we don't carry that name. Woe unto him by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had never been born. Woe, eternal woe, to Judas. Judas is endlessly repulsive to us, and, and yet, as the tabloids have taught us to say, endlessly fascinating as well. This one man, atop the absolute pinnacle of infamy in 20 centuries of Christian history, he provokes in us a never-ending stream of questions. How could he do it, we say in pious tones, as though the thought of being disloyal to our friends had never crossed our minds? Why did he do it, we ask? as we settled back into the cushions of armchair psychiatry. What motivated him to betray the one who had always been unfailingly kind to him, the one who had always been incredibly generous to him, the one who had always forgiven him? We can more easily forgive Jesus' other enemies, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, the Herodians. Their sins are more nearly similar to ours, we get it. We understand motivations like pride and envy and vengeance and even bitterness. But betraying the one you say you love? This is a sin we claim to have no experience of. Through the centuries, Judas has certainly been fascinating to the artists of our world as well. It's probably no exaggeration to say that almost every artist who works in the Christian tradition has at some time or another tried to, to sketch out Judas in some lines of poetry, in the carvings on an altarpiece, in the paintings on a monastery wall. What would he look like? What would he look like, this, this monster from the deep? This man with the heart of darkness? How would you draw him if you could? How would you draw him at that moment, as recorded in Scripture, 
where John envisions him. How would you picture Judas at that moment when all of his life came down to one decisive choice? Several years ago, I read a fascinating little book called simply Leonardo's Judas. It was written in the 1950s by Leo Perutz, a Jewish author from Eastern Europe. And it finds fertile territory in the many stories and myths that have grown up during the last 500 years about the painting of Leonardo da Vinci's famous depiction of the Last Supper. Now, there's probably no better known and no more abused picture in Christian history than the Last Supper. I've seen the Last Supper done in needlepoint with red-faced Peter right beside pale Jesus. I've seen the Last Supper done in tiny beads, the walls the color of the bottom of a swimming pool, the tables spread with all those beady little pearls. I even thought, even think I saw it once on black velvet, right up beside those handsome portraits of Elvis and unicorns. Mercifully, I have seen the Last Supper on the wall where da Vinci painted it 500 years ago in Milan. And even though it's experienced a multi-million dollar restoration, it's still a faded, deteriorating image. Somehow, it can't live up to all the expectations we bring to it. But Leonardo's Judas doesn't try to tell us how this icon came to be. It doesn't try to tell us about Leonardo's impressive technique. Instead, the story focuses on da Vinci's search for the face of the man who could be the face of Judas. As Perutz tells the story, Judas was by far the hardest figure for Leonardo to complete. The rest of the painting had been relatively easy to execute. You know, guileless Nathaniel, pensive Thomas, sturdy Peter, melancholy John. For months, for years in fact, Leonardo had searched through the faces of Milan, looking at tradesmen, looking at artisans, looking at bankers, looking at jugglers, looking for the face that somehow caught what Leonardo thought would be the face of Judas. And a dozen times, Leonardo had found a face that he thought would work, or at least a useful face. And a dozen times, he had painted it out or scraped the pigments off. It would require a special face, according to Leonardo, to be the face of Judas. It would require the face of someone who could willfully choose to hurt the one they said they loved. As Perutz tells his story, we meet a prosperous young merchant named Joachim. He has come to Milan to sell his wares and to settle some debts, and while in Milan, he falls in love with a local girl hopelessly, desperately in love. 
And she returns his affection with all of the honesty and the loyalty of her life. She lives for his love. She belongs to him. She looks forward to that day when they will marry and raise children together. But as some of you know, love by its very nature is jealous. And when Joachim begins to suspect that she is somehow disloyal to him, he tortures himself with imagined infidelities. While she is truly virtuous, he is endlessly suspicious. While she loves only him, he drives himself nearly crazy with foolish, doubting thoughts about her. Every time he sees her in a conversation with a tradesman, he assumes they are planning some secret rendezvous. Finally, he can take the pain of love no longer. And in his anger, he devises a scheme, a scheme to desert her on the very eve of their promised wedding. Having raised her hopes to the highest pitch, he now cruelly and callously tosses her aside. If she's no longer useful to him, she will be useful to no one else. Well, we meet Joachim next, some years later, riding into Milan on his next business trip. And he can't understand. He can't understand why children run away from him as he approaches. He can't understand why, why old women cross themselves and say, Our fathers. Why young men look at him and curse. Finally, in desperation, he climbs down off his horse and seizes the next passerby. What is it, he says? Why is everyone avoiding me? Oh, they said, oh. Go to the monastery of Santa Maria del Grazie and look at the bakery wall there. He makes his way across the city to the monastery. And there on the wall, he sees himself. Leonardo has found the face he was looking for. His face is the face of Judas. It's the skill of a great author to show us a man who finally sees his own face in the face of Judas. It's a clever writer who subtly breaks down this monstrous image we have of Judas so carefully and so slowly that finally we begin to see that in some powerfully important ways he was so much like who we are. Yes, if the truth were known, a lot of us have hurt the ones we love. Yes, if the truth were known, some of us have sold a friend's good reputation for 30 pieces of silvery gossip. And some of us have even let our anger build towards someone we said we loved until it boiled over in some damaging, destructive way. Our sin is really not so different as this man we love to hate. Because our sin 
is actually still sin. And whether our sin is lust or greed or violence or pride, it represents, like Judas's treachery, a, a lashing out, a striking at the heart of God with the full intent to wound him, to hurt him, to abandon him, to desert him. With Judas, we share a common victim. With Judas, we share this dreadfully familiar habit of hurting the one we love. I take great comfort when I read the 13th chapter of John's Gospel to discover that Jesus gave to Judas every conceivable opportunity to change his mind and to back away from what he had contemplated doing. In no less than six different ways, Grace was so extended to Judas. Even on the night of his betrayal, that we can only marvel at the patience of Jesus, or, or as the King James Version used to put it, the long-suffering of Jesus. For dealing with Judas was, in a very real way, the beginning of Jesus' suffering. Even before he lay stretched out, weeping and pleading before his father in the garden, even before he was subjected to the sham and the mockery of midnight trials, even before he was stripped and beaten and ultimately nailed to a wooden crossbeam, he had already experienced the agony of watching Judas's dance of deceit. Hour by hour, in the last week of his ministry, Jesus had watched in Judas the ripening of anger, the growth of vengeance. Day by day, Jesus had watched the little dodges, the, the clever evasions, as Judas, the consummate actor, tried to pretend that he was still the same faithful disciple he had always been. The same Jesus who could see the character of Nathaniel under the fig tree. The same Jesus who knew the temperament of Peter before he even met him, he knew exactly who Judas was, what Judas had planned, what Judas had contemplated doing. He could see the slope down which Judas was sliding. Think for a moment of the ways that Jesus tried to stop the slide of Judas. First, he gave Judas a position of trust. There wasn't any obligation for Jesus to appoint Judas as the treasurer of the ministry. Matthew would have certainly been a safer and more reliable choice. After all, he had some experience counting money. John or Thomas would certainly have been more loyal. But Jesus knows that trust, trust often begets accountability. Jesus knows that responsibility often creates loyalty. 
And his grace to Judas began with the fact that against most logic and even against that divine knowledge he had of Judas's character, he still trusted Judas with all the money that the ministry had. Secondly, Jesus ex expressed his affection for Judas with his own body. According to the text, Jesus took off his clothes and he got down on the floor and he washed Judas's feet. If you don't think that's an act of redemption, you haven't thought about it very long. These were the very feet that had already made the trip to the chief priest's office to seal the deal that would give up Jesus. These were the very feet that later that same night would bring an angry mob to seize him in the garden. And yet Jesus, in full knowledge of all of this, he bent down and he caressed the feet of Judas with the same tenderness he had once formed Adam from the dust of the earth. He washed away the dirt, hoping, wishing, praying that he would be allowed to wash away the sin. I think he must have lingered at the feet of Judas stroking those resolute feet with the towel as long as he could so as not to draw undue attention to him, though. Finally, with sorrow, he moved on to the next disciple. Thirdly, Jesus invoked the authority of Scripture in the hearing of Judas. Jesus quoted in the hearing of Judas a well-known statement from the Psalms that evening that must have made Judas almost pale at the thought that his treachery had been found out by everyone. You, you can't get much more direct than to take the hymn book of the church, which is what the Psalms were to the people of Israel, to take the hymn book and to quote from it, the one who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. If trust wouldn't reach Judas, and humility wouldn't reach Judas, then maybe scripture would reach Judas. Jesus would try anything. Fourthly, Jesus extended the signs of friendship to Judas. Jesus gave to Judas the position of highest honor at the table that night. Something, again, he was in no way obligated to do. We have been used to thinking of the most favored position as being on the right hand. But historians tell us that table etiquette of the first century required that you placed your most honored guest at your immediate left, where you could more easily talk with them as you both reclined beside the table. Jesus literally would have placed his head so near to that of Judas that the two of them could have talked without being overheard. In full view of the other 11, who were no doubt envious of the privilege, Jesus honored Judas by demonstrating that even at this last hour, 
he still considered him his intimate friend. Fifthly, Jesus revealed that he had understood Judas's heart. Jesus reached for the heart of Judas by revealing that he knew the content of Judas's plot. You know, there's nothing like exposure to give a man pause when he's contemplating something criminal. There's nothing like the revelation that all your schemes are known in advance to make you think about whether you want to go forward. In the flash of Jesus' bombshell announcement, one of you will betray me, Judas must have known that whatever advantage he thought he had was now gone, rather than being the, the bold, decisive player that he liked to imagine himself to be. He was really just the tool of larger forces. In an instant, the player realized that he had been played. He had been played by those who knew even better how they wanted this story to end. It was a stinging lesson to learn, but it was a lesson still calculated to bring Judas back from the brink of disaster. Lastly, Jesus fed Judas from his own hand. Jesus reached into the dish in front of him and he pulled out the choicest morsel and he offered it to Judas. This is a custom lost on us who are used to sitting at specified distances from each other and eating our food off of separate plates. But in the ancient world, if you wanted to show special honor to a guest, you selected some delicacy from the common serving utensils and you personally handed it to that person. It was a gesture that wasn't lost on the other disciples. And it certainly wasn't lost on Judas. Here again, he was the recipient of trust. Here again, he was being extended the symbols of friendship. Here again, he was being honored with esteem. He, the utterly undeserving one, the one who had already contracted with the priests, the one who even then could feel at his waist the weight of the silver he had gained for that betrayal. He was being sought by the relentless grace of Jesus. Judas would tell you if he could that the love of Jesus, the love of Jesus has a tenacity to it that will either break your heart in two or else it will harden it into stone. hundred and fifty years ago, a young poet who knew that desperate attempt to escape the relentless love of Jesus. He recorded his experience in a poem the older ones of us may remember from high school literature classes. Francis Thompson, the hound of heaven, 
described God seeking him the way the bloodhound goes after the trail of an escaped fugitive. He wrote, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in the mist of tears, I hid from him. And under running laughter, Upvisted hopes I sped and shot, precipitated down at titanic glooms of chasmed fears from those strong feet that followed, followed after. But with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, they beat, and a voice beat more instant than the feet, all things betray thee who betrayest me. Thompson finally stopped one day, he says, and turned around and surrendered to the hound of heaven, to the love that wouldn't let go. Oh, love that will not let me go. I rest my weary soul in thee, I give thee back the life I owe that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. Love that won't let go. My friends, when I see the lengths to which Jesus went to reach the heart of Judas, when I look at the many, many ways he tried to bring back Judas from the brink of disaster, I can only shake my head in amazement. Truly, my friends, truly, it must be easy to be saved and hard to be lost. Easy to be saved and hard to be lost. Only a determined, resistant attitude will ever be able to keep us from the arms of the one who says he has loved us from all eternity. Ellen White reminds us that the love of Jesus is naturally attractive to our hearts. She tells us that each one of us, each day, is being drawn to the cross of Jesus. And to quote her, if we do not resist this drawing, we will be led to the foot of the cross in repentance for the sins that crucified the Savior. If we do not resist this drawing, we will be led to the foot of the cross. Do you believe it? I find great hope in a line like that, my friends. It rings with the same great assurance and the same relentless grace that I find from Genesis to Revelation. The God I know, the God of Scripture, the God who has revealed himself in the 66 divisions of that book, the God who is preeminently on display in the life of Jesus, he won't let me go any more than he would let Judas go. Yes, my righteousness, my righteousness may be the rags of broken promises and mixed motivations. But Jesus still holds out to me the spotless robe of his own righteousness, and he tells me that if only I will put it on, I will be clean and whole and restored in his sight. 
Yes, you may have messed up your body with all kinds of chemicals. You may have polluted it with all kinds of lusts. You may have subjected it to all manner of degradations. But Jesus looks beyond what is to what can be, and he declares that your life and your body can still be a temple of the Holy Ghost. Yes, you may have alienated yourself from your friends or your family through foolish dealing. You may have created around you a cycle of bitterness that makes you dread your life. Your spouse, your kids, your roommate, your colleagues, your neighbors, they may have all given up on you. They may say that you are utterly irredeemable, but Jesus never does. He stands there in the midst of the wreckage of your life, promising to be your peace, promising to be your wholeness, promising to be your reconciliation, promising you an eternal life with him. When we look at the story of Judas, when we see the choices that he made, we can only shake our heads in amazement that love could so successfully be resisted. It takes a special kind of stubbornness to resist the trust that Jesus places in you by calling you to be his disciple, but it can be done. Judas proves it. It can be done. It takes a special kind of obstinacy to brush off the sight of Jesus kneeling at your feet washing away the record of your sins. But it can be done. Judas proves it. it. It can be done. It takes a lot of concentration, a lot of concentration, to shut your eyes and shut your ears to the appeal that Jesus makes to you every time you open the pages of his word. But it can be done. Judas proves it. It can be done. takes a watchful determination to make sure that your heart isn't in the least bit softened by the Holy Spirit. That you manage to, to fend off the appeals that Jesus makes to walk lonely roads with you and to weep when you need to weep and to be with you when you have lost someone precious. It takes watchful determination to resist that. But it can be done. It takes vigilance, my friends. It takes real vigilance to resist the candid appeals of the Holy Spirit to for be forgiven, to be restored, to be reconciled, to be made whole. But Judas proves you can resist. It takes self-control. It takes steely self-control to reject the offer that Jesus makes to be your substitute, to be your Passover lamb, to be your savior from sin, your redeemer. It takes willpower to insist that you alone have the right to speak for yourself. You have the right to live for yourself, and of course, you have the right to die for yourself. 
as C.S. Lewis once said so well, there are only two kinds of people in the end, just two. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. The story of Judas is proof positive that the love of Jesus can be resisted. Perhaps no one who has ever lived more successfully resisted the drawing power of Jesus than Judas did. Though why anyone would want to do that, I can never fathom. That's a contest I never want to win. I'm a competitive person, but that's a race I never want to run. No, my friends, in the contest to resist Jesus, let me always lose. In the race to get away from Jesus, I hope I finish last every time. Let me lose myself in grace. Let me lose myself in mercy. Let me lose myself in wonder at the goodness of God that is given to me, who am less than the least of all saints. I have deserved none of these good things. He has given me all, all these good things to Jesus. To Jesus be glory.